Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Dr. Jasper Sheely, Jake to his friends, is almost certainly the world's foremost authority on skier injuries, author of dozens of studies on all manner of injury-related subjects, such as lift tower padding and terrain park design. His detailed ongoing examination of skier fatalities has earned him the ominous nickname of Dr. Death. But as you'll soon discover, dear listeners, Jake Sheely is anything but dour. His latest paper on the subject of skier deaths, titled Snow Sports Deaths in the U.S. 1974 through 2019, will soon be presented at the next International Society of Skiing Safety meeting. Jake, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Thank you, Jackson. Glad to be here, sitting here in upstate New York. It's kind of chilly, but uh, here I am. So thanks for inviting me to uh, join you. My pleasure. Perhaps you could begin by sharing with my dear listeners a little more about your street cred, both academic and professional. How did you come to be the expert in the field that you are? It's like a long, shaggy dog story. Frankly, it's amazing to me, and and I guess to others as well, that, that I got where I am, considering that I was born in Montgomery, Alabama, went to high school in Tennessee, attended Georgia Tech as an undergrad. My career in skiing, I guess, starts with my commissioning in the Air Force, and then the Air Force saying, well, son, where would you like to go? And I said, the Northeast. And so I wound up in Syracuse, New York. That was in November of 1963. My roommate, who was from Valdosta, Georgia, and I sat there looking out the window as the snow was falling and said, huh, what should we do? I've forgotten whether it was me or him, but he said, well, why don't we take up skiing? Sounds like fun, and who knows, we might meet a girl. So that was how I began skiing. In fact, I did meet a girl and met my uh, wife-to-be at Bristol Mountain a couple of years later. Uh, we can skip through a year in the garden spot of Southeast Asia, all expenses paid sort of thing, in Saigon and north of Saigon and the Central Plains. That's the one year since 1963 that I didn't go skiing, understandably. When I left the Air Force and went to grad school, there, there comes a time when you completed the coursework that you need to do some research. And I was studying at that time systems engineering. And the topic was the theory, accidents are not really accidents. Accidents are system failures. Then the question is, okay, how do you study that? And I was pondering how to do it when my wife, Lucy, suggested, well, why don't you study ski injuries? My initial thought, well, that sounds kind of trivial. But then she said, you know, you got hurt and um, other people get hurt. Don't you think that's serious? Wonderful logic there. So I went to the library. In those days, we didn't have the Internet, so we had to do all of our research in the library. So I went to the library to discover, with regard to ski injury research, from an engineering point of view, we knew nothing, absolutely nothing. What we did know was from a medical perspective and lots of stuff about how to fix broken legs and the like. So I went to see my advisor, and his initial reaction was somewhat similar to mine. Well, sounds kind of trivial, don't you think? And by then, I was loaded for bear. He was a skier himself, and he said, hmm, okay, good idea. So that was the beginning of my ski injury research, which really dates back to 1969. 
And the master's thesis that came out of that was the epidemiology of ski injuries, where I studied 2,500 skiers who happened to be the University of Buffalo Ski Club over a period of two years, tracking them. Then it came time for the master's thesis, and my thesis committee said, gee, you did such a great job on your uh, master's thesis. Why don't you just expand it a little bit, and we'll call it a PhD. And so I did. The effects of risk-taking on skill test performance, I think that was the full academic title. Of course, skiing was the activity, and the risk-taking was the act of skiing. And trying to figure out to what degree can we measure something called risk-taking, and if we can measure, to what degree does it determine the likelihood of injury? Like so many academic studies, studying something that seems incredibly obvious uh, in the beginning, and you spend a lot of time proving that, yes, it, it, it is true. What I can say is if you engage in risk-taking behavior, the more you take risk, the more likely you are to be injured. Who would have guessed? Anyhow, <laughs> that got me my PhD, so I'm not complaining. Then I got invited to join the faculty, a place called RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology, and I joined there. The next thing I knew, I got invited to join ASTM, the American Society for Testing Materials, because they had just started a subcommittee to generate standards for snow skiing equipment. And I had given a paper based on my research at a couple of different places, uh, one with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons out in Aspen, and then also at the Human Factors Society out in L.A., uh, so I was gaining, eh, to some degree, a little bit of notoriety. And the next thing I knew, I was invited to join. In my work at ASTM, I came across Bob Johnson and Carl Ellinger. The three of us formed up a team. You may or may not have heard of the Sugarbush Studies, but the Sugarbush Studies started in the 1972-73 and took place at Sugarbush Mountain, Vermont. Hate to sound immodest, but it's the best damn study of ski injuries ever done. So we had a clinic at the base of the mountain, the ski patrol. We had Carl Etlinger with his Vermont calibrator and also with the ASTM 504 machine. When an injury occurred, we were immediately on the scene because we picked them up as they came into the clinic. We had a long questionnaire with regard to not only what was the nature of their injury, but how did you get hurt? And at the same time, we could examine their equipment to see what, if any, role the equipment played with it. So that was the beginning of the Sugarbush study. And, and that continued from the early 70s all the way through to about 2019, when unfortunately the study sort of ran out of steam, you might say. We've had dozens of publications that have come out of it. We were the first ones to identify the ACL injury situation, the ACL mechanism, and actually some programs that could confront the ACL injury, among other things. In addition to that, I've been asked to help with the NSAA, the National Ski Areas Association, to do a series of 10-year studies. So at 10-year intervals, I would gather up information from a statistically representative section of ski resorts across the U.S. and compile and analyze the injury data from that 
and couple that with what's known as the NSAA demographic study that they do every year. And so we've published, let's see, we started that in 1980. So 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010. And when we wanted to do the, the 2020, of course, COVID hit and it's kind of messed things up. So we still have plans to do one, but we haven't done it yet. In the meantime, through ASTM, we have also been involved in something called IFSS, the International Society for Skiing Safety. And this is a group of, the number varies, anywhere from, oh, maybe 150 to 250 people around the world who are interested in one way or another with skiing and ski injuries. And of course, we've expanded it to include the term snow sports. So it's not just skiing, but it's snowboarding and pretty much anything else we can identify that takes place on snow that's uh, gravity propelled. One of the highlights of my bizarre history was that in 1990, I became head of the Department of Industrial and Systems Engineering at RIT. At that point, nobody from our department had ever gone on what some people call sabbatical. Uh, at RIT, we, we didn't like the term sabbatical, so we called it professional development. No one had ever done that. So the dean started haranguing all of us department heads, but especially me, because nobody from my department had ever done it. It just kept at it. And so one day I had the right idea. I said, you know, maybe the way to shut him up is, is to propose something that's just so ridiculous uh, that it'll shut him up. So put together a little proposal that, Dean, you want somebody to go somewhere. I propose that I will take the winter off and go study ski injuries. So I'll go to a ski resort like Sugarbush. But, you know, you need a little more meat on the bone. So I had to think about exactly what would I do. As you may or may not recall, around 1990, helmets were just becoming a thing. There was a question, gee, do you really need a helmet while you're skiing? Because, you know, we were in the same, do you really need a helmet when you're riding a bike? So I proposed, well, why don't I study the efficacy of helmets in skiing? I, I guess it was kind of fortuitous that, that the dean turned out to be a skier, and he thought it was a capital idea. So <laughs> off I go. And all of my, uh, my fellow comrades, my fellow professors in the College of Engineering are saying, what? You're going to go off and do what? And I said, well, you know, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's my area of research. I, I can't help it if you chose some dull topic like thermodynamics. So that was the beginning of my study of ski helmets. We wrapped that up after about 20 years with the conclusion that helmets are a terrific way to prevent head injuries, but don't expect it to save your life. I would indeed like to revisit the topic of helmets, but let's get into, well, it's related, the field that earned you the nickname Dr. Death, the study of fatalities and the report on that that you're going to present to the IFSS meeting. Okay, go back to 1985. I want to go to an IFSS meeting, and I need something to talk about. And the thought occurred to me, well, people die. What do we know about people who die while they're skiing? And once again, you go to the library and you, you discover we knew virtually nothing. It was a, a virgin topic. And that was my first paper with regard to fatalities in skiing. And since then, I've done a total of seven different studies on fatalities in skiing. 
that first study, one of the things that just stood out like a sore thumb was the fact that the majority of the fatalities are males. It was about 85% at that time. The other thing was that the majority of the fatalities were high-speed collisions with fixed objects. So that was really the first study. And since then, I've studied the difference between fatalities in skiing versus fatalities in snowboarding. I've looked at male fatalities versus female fatalities. The list sort of goes on. So here we are in 2022, and I'm off to the next IFSS meeting. If you started this in the late 60s, you must be getting kind of long in the tooth, and I, I think that's true. So I sort of see this as maybe a bit of a culmination. Over the course of time, I had gotten death reports of one form or another, abstracted death certificates, public media reports, data from the U.S. Commission for Product Safety Commission, CPSC. Altogether, I've had about 1,500 different individual death accounts. I've never looked at that broad stretch of time. So what do we know with regard to roughly 45 years of time? What can we see? And so that's the paper that I'll be presenting in a couple of weeks in France. You draw some very interesting conclusions in your study that I think the average skier needs to (laughs) be slightly more aware of, shall we say. One of them being what you alluded to earlier, that a helmet has many valuable functions, but prevention of your death is not one of them. Give us just a little taste of the math that goes on here. How fast is the skier probably going who's hitting this, let's call it a tree, since it most often is, but it could be obviously be something else. What's the scenario? Sure. Well, one of the things that I noticed early on was that a very, very common statement somewhere in the narrative was this person was going fast or extremely fast or very fast. So I began to wonder, well, how fast is fast? Which led to a study of, well, how fast do skiers and snowboarders go? I knew from the death certificates and the like that the majority of them occurred on Blue Square Trails. And the majority of them occurred on the margins of Blue Square Trails. And the majority of them occurred on nicely groomed Blue Square Trails. So that gave me an idea. Well, why don't I go see how fast people go on groomed blue square trails. So we got a radar gun, got it properly calibrated, and went to three different locations, Park City, Bristol Mountain, and we went to Sugarbush. Altogether, we measured something close to a thousand skiers and snowboarders. We tried to do it in called an unobtrusive manner, because, you know, if you're standing out in the middle of the slope, you're likely to influence their behavior in some way. So we tried to do sort of a a smoking bear cop that hides behind the billboard routine. So we would place ourselves behind some object, usually behind a a lift tower that had a big pad on it, so that it wasn't obvious to somebody coming down the hill who we were and what we were doing. And we didn't point the radar gun uphill, we pointed it downhill. So we were measuring it after they had passed us. Skiers rarely go straight down the hill. They traverse back and forth. We would hold the radar gun on them for as long as we could, which was usually something in the order of like 10 seconds. 
and we would record the maximum speed we observed during that period of time. So we generate a paper that talked about the average maximum speed. And the upshot of that was that the average maximum speed we saw was about 26 miles an hour. Skiers were a little faster. Snowboarders were a little slower. Males were faster than females. We stopped a bunch of them at the bottom of the slope to determine who they were, male, female, age, things like that, uh, whether they were wearing a helmet or not. We learned from that study, males were faster than females by about three or four miles per hour. There was a steady progression from beginner to intermediate to expert with respect to speed. People wearing helmets tended to go a little faster than people without helmets. That study of speed was prompted by the question, well, how fast is fast? And so now we move on to helmets. The ASTM standard for helmets, which is F2040, is very similar to the ISO standard. There's a Schnell standard and so forth. They're all fairly similar in that they test for impact. The bottom line is all of those speeds result in an impact speed of about 12 miles an hour, 12 to 14 miles an hour. The head form has an accelerometer in it that measures acceleration in three axes. And the, the standard typically is that it should not exceed, and this number will vary, but something on the order of 200 Gs at impact. So the helmet should attenuate the impact down to about 200 Gs. 200 Gs is really quite a hit, but it's not lethal. It's 12 miles an hour. So if you're skiing at 27 miles an hour and you hit something as solid as a lift tower or a tree, tree trunk, the impact that you're going to sustain is way beyond anything that any helmet you could conceivably put on your head could address. And so one of the upshots of the, the helmet study at the end of 20 years was that we saw about a 75% reduction in what we called potentially serious head injuries. So what is a potentially serious head injury? It's a diagnosed concussion, skull fracture, death by head injury, things of that sort. You know, the serious head injuries, not just some laceration or abrasion. What we found was that overall at, at Sugarbush, we've seen a better than 75% reduction in these potentially serious head injuries. But at the same time, doing these national studies on fatalities, it was puzzling. We weren't seeing any change whatsoever. And we were trying to figure out why, and that's when we started doing the speed study. And Herb Shear did this marvelous study that compared having a, an instrument in head form with a helmet against three surfaces, against a tree trunk, against snow, and against ice. The results were quite conclusive, comparing helmeted, not helmeted. Under those circumstances where the, the impact speed was maybe... 13, 14, 15 miles an hour, somewhere in that range. The helmet would reduce the potential because you have something called a HIC, head impact criteria. It would reduce that for a non-helmeted impact being near fatal to a helmeted impact that you would probably survive. You would survive if you hit the snow. You would not survive. That's coming back. Okay, it was 19 miles an hour. At 19 miles an hour, if you're wearing a helmet, and you fall on relatively soft snow, 
you'll survive. If you aren't wearing the helmet, there's a pretty good chance you'll have some sort of a head injury, mild to moderate. On the other hand, if you hit this tree trunk with the helmet, you're still likely to die. Without the helmet, you most definitely will die. So one of the more macabre conclusions there is that the the helmet will simply make you a better looking cadaver because your head won't be messed up so bad. That's a Uh, very consoling thought. If I could steer this into a slightly parallel track, talk to mm -hmm. me about helmets and children. That's challenging because when we were doing our studies, we were going out and looking at who's wearing helmets and how are they wearing helmets. With kids, it was just bizarre. They would be out there with helmets that were way too big because the parent, well, they'll grow into it, so they'll buy a bigger helmet than, than they needed. And so they would stuff all sorts of things in there. You know, they'd have a couple of little caps on that sort of thing. Or they'd be wearing a bike helmet, or they'd be wearing a skateboard helmet, hockey helmet. Uh, sometimes they were on backwards. Usually they were tilted way back. Sometimes they were buckled. Frequently they were not buckled. And, and so we were a little concerned that they aren't wearing their helmets properly, and we're not sure how good the helmet will be for them anyhow. But that said, I, I still think that they should definitely wear them because children's brains are more susceptible to injury than, than our adult brains. They're still forming and so forth. Okay. One of the ultimate conclusions, the most recent analysis of death statistics have <laughs> taken over a long period of time, mm-hmm. is that you didn't really see how the death rate was likely to change. No. No, because when you start looking at the circumstances, the the dilemma is that in skiing, it's hard to imagine skiing without fixed objects being somewhere, trees, lift towers, and so forth. And typical skiing speeds are well in excess of 12 miles an hour. The human being is the one that makes the choice as to where they're skiing, how they're skiing, how fast they're skiing. Maybe that's part of the reason why we haven't seen any significant change in fatality rates since we first started measuring it way back in the 70s. But those elements were there then and they're here now. One thing that has changed, which is kind of interesting, and I don't know the reason for this, go way back in the beginning, males only accounted for about, oh, 70% of all the fatalities. Today, it's more like 90%. I just don't know why more males are dying than ever. I can appreciate more males dying than females because the risk-taking propensity is gender-driven. Males are much more likely to be risk-takers than our females. So that, that would help explain, you know, maybe an 80-20 distribution. But to go from, let's say, 30-70 to 10-90 over... 40-some-odd years. I, frankly, I don't know why that is. If anybody has any suggestions, I'm wide open. I'd love to know. I'd like to expand upon another point you raised earlier, which is how fast is fast and coming up with this average max speed, more or less, of 26 miles per hour. I'm sure you're aware that the average speed measuring device worn by today's skier routinely tells the little butterball that's wearing this thing on his wrist that he just went 80 miles an hour. I kid you not, 80 miles an hour. 
a speed unobtainable without yeah. all sorts of preconditions, almost too many to mention here. In other yeah. words, there's a perception on the part of the public driven by these GPS-based devices that people who are physically incapable of going 60 miles an hour happily tell me during a ski sale seance that they routinely exceed 80 miles an hour. And would I like to see their watch or yeah. app or right. whatever? And I'm just sitting there quietly weeping. <laughs> Where do I begin? Maybe you can help me out here. You know better than me, World Cup skiers on the downhill. They're going like 80, 85 miles an hour. And no mere mortal can even come close to that. So these devices are clearly not accurate. I mean, that's one reason why we used carefully calibrated radar guns that you know were accurate to within a mile per hour or so. Can you recall the peak speed of any one? In other words, the most aberrant number, the, the highest peak you might have recorded at any of your three locations? Yeah, it was 47 miles an hour. Yeah. And that person, I happen to be the one that took that measurement. That person, the expression going like a bat out of hell, I heard him coming. The way his fabric was flapping in the wind, you could hear them coming almost before you could see them. So I got to tell you, well, as I'm sure you know, you know, almost 50 miles an hour, that is really fast on a ski slope. 50 miles an hour, first of all, is completely irresponsible on a oh, slope. Oh, absolutely. Because you can, if things have, it's a logarithmic curve, I believe I'm correcting saying, in the sense that 50 is a lot faster than 40, and 60 feels oh, so much faster than 50. Events just come at you as a mammal who can run maybe, what, five miles an hour or something, to suddenly try to process information that's coming, the, the event horizon is coming at you in a blur. Yeah. One of the courses I used to teach was human physiology. Of course, I was influenced by my interest in skiing, how crash-worthy is a human being? And if you believe in evolution, which I do, you think about, well, how fast can a human run? And the answer is peak speed, Hussein Bolt and the like, they can reach about 20 miles an hour. How fast can most people run? Well, maybe up to 15 miles an hour if you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger or something. I think we evolved to be a creature that could take about a 15-mile-an-hour hit, and that's about it. Because through all of human existence up until the last 200 years or so, that's as fast as you could go. In my radar gun experience, you know, once a skier got going more than about, say, 30 miles an hour, they became very loud. The fabric on their jacket, flapping the pants and whatnot, you could actually hear them. What was going on under their feet? In other words, how much control does a person who's even attempting to reach this imaginary speed, how much control do they have when they actually reach what that physical limit is? It varies with skill. World Cup skiers can control themselves at 70, 80 miles an hour. Most of us earthlings, uh, no, not so much. You know, the image that, that comes out of the fatally injured skier is that he, predominantly, is on the side of a nicely groomed trail. He's not in the middle because that's where all the turkeys are. And the, the nice groomed snow is on the side. And he's going along at a high rate of speed. And some downhill person is traversing. And our speeder is thinking they're going to turn and I can go between them and the trees. 
And guess what? This person isn't turning. They're just going over to the edge to stop maybe. So our speeder is left with an uncomfortable choice. Should I hit this person or should I go into the trees? And if they go into the trees, that's not good. Or let's say they're going along and they catch an edge and they fall and they slide into the trees. That's the image that I see. And it's tied up with speed. If you weren't going that fast, you wouldn't be faced with these awful choices. When I was a competitor in freestyle, there was a period in the U.S. where liability insurance caused the NSAA to recommend to all their constituent resorts that they vigorously stop anybody from doing upside-down aerials, whether it was in competition or you're just building a little kicker in the side of the hill somewhere. It was just clamped down, which is why the whole freestyle circuit then decamped for Europe. We run the real forward 25 years, and the resorts are building jumps that we kids could never have dreamed of building. That has got to have increased risk (laughs) in this particular area. Talk to me about terrain park risks and what's going on there, and how can we allow this on mountains when, to me, they look like death traps? I just happened to have done a paper on that called, Are Terrain Parks Part of a Good Risk Management Program? Human beings, especially males, like to jump. I was a a patroller for roughly 10 years from 1975 to 85. The rule back then was if you saw daylight between somebody's skis and the snow surface, you pulled their ticket, or at least you warned them and tore off a corner of the ticket. If they got caught jumping again and the corner was missing, they were out of there. And so we've gone from that to the point now where we're encouraging jumping. And the paper that we did showed that actually, you think about the jumps that are in terrain parks. Some of them are god awful huge, but on the other hand, they are constructed by people with a lot of expertise in jumping, and they are tested before they're open to the public. As jumps go, they're reasonably safe jumps. They've got a landing zone. They're in a restricted area, so that if you take a jump, you're not going to blindly clobber somebody and whatnot. And The end result is that actually there's a great reduction in jumping on the rest of the ski resort because if you want to jump, go to a terrain park. They've got some really nice jumps. So we don't have as many collisions between jumpers and innocent civilians. And the jumps are safer because they've got a decent landing zone and a run-out zone, that sort of thing. It's my conclusion that, you know, if you accept the inevitable, people are going to jump whether you want them to or not. Let's at least provide them with a reasonably safe place to do that jumping. And it has several benefits, one of which is it protects innocent bystanders. And the other is it gives you a graduated set of jumps for the beginner. Here's a small jump or just, you know, like a tabletop or something where you can just get a little bit of air and you start to learn. And you can take lessons in jumping. One of the worst things that can happen going off of a jump is to get into the back seat. Because if you're in the back seat going off of a jump, you're almost certain to do an inverted aerial, whether you want to or not. And given the physics of the situation, more likely than not, you're going to rotate 180 degrees instead of 360. And you're going to come down landing on the back of your head. And I got to tell you, that's, that's one of the worst possible places to land. So if you're going to jump, go to a train park and why not think about taking a lesson? And by all means, for God's sake, don't get in the back seat. 
talk about taking lessons. There is a flood of new skiers heading off into the backcountry. We in retail try to make sure to intercept them along the way, since we're complicit in it to the degree that we sell them the stuff that allows them to do it, you know, make sure that they're getting a proper education. Nonetheless, I believe the U.S. set a new record last year for avalanche deaths. And I realize that X resort or out of resort deaths has not been your particular domain of expertise, but you're certainly aware of the phenomenon. What can you tell us about backcountry deaths and has it been going up at the same rate as backcountry participation? That's one area I have not done a study as yet. The reason that I've excluded them is that in doing the kinds of studies that I do, you need what's known as the exposure to risk. That means, well, how many skier visits or how many visits to the resort take place? so that you can compute a rate, number of deaths per, in our case, because deaths are such rare events, we measured a number of deaths per million resort visits, and the number is is about 0.7, 0.7 deaths per million visits to a resort, whereas your chance of any injury is about 1.5 to 2 such injuries per 1,000 days at the ski resort. And I don't know how many people go in the backcountry, and I, I can't, so I can't compute a rate. I know that there are numbers out there, and maybe I should take a look at them. One way in which the backcountry market has intersected with your in-resort domain is in equipment selection and the current rise in incompatibility in mm-hmm. boot soles being used in alpine bindings. People buying equipment meant for touring and putting it into or trying to stick it into an alpine binding and in the process recreating an injury dynamic that we had otherwise wiped out when we previously created standards for alpine boots and bindings specifically to avoid incompatibility. I remember you were there at the ASTM meetings and maybe some of the ISO meetings where we hammered out these standards, uh, where we standardized the boot sole configuration. Prior to that, as you you may recall, people used to have these wall charts that looked like some sort of a Excel spreadsheet going crazy about this binding model may or may not work with this particular boot model. And if you want to use boot X with binding Y, you have to modify the boot sole and on and on and on. And once we standardized the boot sole, because as Carl Ellinger so cogently pointed out, the toe of the boot is really just a cam, and the binding is a cam follower. It made life so much easier for everybody. So we, we solved that problem, and we solved the friction problem. And we saw about a 95% reduction in lower limb injuries, especially mid-shaft tibia fractures from bending and twisting. Now, we're back where we started, as you know. We have bindings that are these alpine touring bindings, and we have pen bindings and tech bindings and this and so forth. Yeah, you you can stick almost any boot into almost any binding, but that doesn't mean it's going to work. In fact, you might even wind up with a combination that seems to work in the ski shop, but in fact doesn't work on the hill. Dave Carpenter and I, and this is going back hmm, 10 years ago maybe, sitting at ISO meetings, when all of these new boot designs 
the Alpine Touring boots and the Alpine Touring bindings were coming on the market. And, and we raised our hand and said, wait, wait a minute, this isn't going to work. Nobody listened to us. So here we are today, back almost where we were in the 60s and 70s. Combinations that don't work. They, they have the advantage, if you will, that the boots are more comfortable. You can walk around in them because they've got a rubber sole. They're sort of like amphibians. But unfortunately, the safety side of it has given up. There's another area that skiers associate with injury in general, and it's, it's not death. It's knee injuries. In the old days, the trope was the skier by the fire with their lower leg wrapped in a cast. It, in fact, it was like a symbol for skiing. If it was an emoticon today for skiing, it could be the person in the cast. Now it's the person in a knee brace. <laughs> I know that there have been several injury prevention concepts introduced into the binding world in the past 30 years. Some have been realized, some have not. There's a new binding coming out from Tyrolia for next year that's going to have a heel that may be able to somehow intercept some of the lateral forces behind the heel that contribute to a certain type of isolated ACL injury. Talk to me a little bit about the limitations of what we can do to protect the knee and maybe also the possibilities of what we could do more to protect the knee. Yeah. The message that I don't think has gotten out very well is that actually in the last, oh, I guess it's probably 15 years now, the rate of ACL injuries has declined by 50% or more from where it was. I think it's no coincidence that that's occurred at the same time skis have gotten noticeably shorter. If you shorten the tail of the ski, you shorten the ability, you reduce the ability of the ski to do bad news to you. And the real kicker to all of this is you, you may recall that there was a time when Solomon had these ski boards, did they call it? Snowblades. Snowblades, snowblades. Absolutely the most effective way to break your leg we've invented so far because they had a non-release binding. But they had zero ACL injuries. Zero. And why did they have zero? Because there was no tail to the ski. Why did they have you know, an enormous mid-shaft tibia fracture rate, the binding didn't release. So with the shorter skis, we have roughly half the ACL injuries we used to have. Other things that you could do is Carl's knee-friendly coursework. But is there a hardware solution to this? I don't know. Being an engineer, I would like to believe there's hardware solutions for it. And there have been, as you know, numerous bindings on the market that claim the ability to do that. And I sincerely hope that they do. But I have yet to see any well-controlled study that can demonstrate that, in fact, it does. What are the elements that influence the binding's ability to respond, particularly in, in forward lean, which to your listeners yeah. means someone falling forward or going over the handlebars, if you will, is the stiffness of the boot. Yet we've been unable to, as an industry, to even quantify what stiffness is. <laughs> and therefore, how do we then correlate the fact that I might need to ski at a DIN 10 on my heel because yeah. I use a 140 flex race boot and I'm going to have a very effective lever at opening that heel piece versus yeah. someone who's in a rear entry boot that's shorter and softer and they're not even standing in the same position on the ski, their heel might need to be at a six just because yeah. the boot's yeah. going to be such a mush bucket in terms of responding to forward forces. Well, does that ever take me back? There used to be at Trigobush in the early days something we call the blue boot syndrome. 
in the day, it seemed like virtually all of the rental boots were blue, and they were more like a rubber than a hard plastic. In the shop testing, everything was fine, but that boot was so soft that you would get what was known as the in-boot fracture. The fracture would occur inside the boot, uh, not at the top of the boot, and it was due to the really soft boot. When we published that paper and chatted with the boot manufacturers, I don't know whether it was a coincidence or whether we had an influence or whatnot, but the blue boots pretty quickly disappeared. But it also prompted me to do a study on boot stiffness. And this is something that we spent, I think you were part of that at Mm -hmm. Solomon. My fingerprints Uh, are on a few things in this area. (laughs) Gilbert Deluge, for example, amongst others, we were studying it. We did x-rays, people flexing in the boot and so forth. And we tried to come up with some definition of stiffness. And the best we could come up with was that Supreme Court definition of obscenity. We know it when we see it. Uh, anybody can say, compare one boot to that. Well, this boot's stiffer than that. But of course, as you know, stiffness is also a function of how well does the boot fit? How tightly have you buckled it? Is it a rear entry boot? Is it a front closure uh, boot? And so forth. I guess you just mentioned a few factors, all of which point to the difficulty in trying to quantify a unified field theory, if you will, of boot flex. Because right now we have an indicator on the boot, and I admit it's a number, but because it's a number, people have a a higher level of truthiness (laughs) that they associate with numbers. But there is no truthiness there. No, no, not at all. Not at all. It's a kind of bemusing as a technologist that here's something that we can see and we can feel and we can sense, but damn it, we cannot quantify it. The best we can do is qualify it. Well, one's stiffer than the other. Exactly. We've mentioned in the last few minutes a name that really can't be mentioned often enough in the whole field of skier safety, and that is the late, great Carl Ettinger. I'd like to wrap up our wonderful discussion today with your favorite memories of Carl? <laughs> so many. So many. I mean, share a couple. Um, share a couple of high water. Yeah, Bob and I used to get frustrated with Carl because he would come to some conclusion and we would say, well, what, what's the evidence for this? And invariably, when we would dig down into it, he was right. The guy was just an intuitive genius. He was the first one to actually come up with a good scenario of the ACL injury mechanism. He was the first one to really identify the issue with friction and the introduction of anti-friction devices and that sort of thing. He was the first one to, well, he working with Gene Bonyak at Case Western, developed an effective test device, the 504 machine, and an effective in-shop test device, the Mont Calibrator, to be able to actually quantify settings and release values and so forth. The list just goes on. I'm just in awe that I was able to work with him for, geez, from the 40 years. Amazing. I'd like to share with my dear listeners a Ettinger anecdote that takes him far away from his domain as a ski injury prevention wizard. He used to entertain some of the engineers that would attend the ASTM meetings that would be held right before the Las Vegas ski show. They used to hold a party far, far from the strip. They would find some joint that they could basically take over. And I remember getting into one of these late evening, all engineered, all PhDs, 
all absolutely schnackered. I mean, dancing on the table schnackered. I mean, <laughs> absolutely yes. over the house. They, <laughs> you would have never guessed that this sedate group of people who are arguing the most arcane points during the day were now, at, you could best describe as a bacchanalia. You're missing the summer bacchanalia, which was held in Burlington on Lake Champagne. One time, we got stopped by the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard wanted to know how many souls on board, and nobody knew. They boarded the Excalibur, and they wanted to do a body count, how many people are here, and then they wanted to know how many personal flotation devices do you have? Well, that was the opportunity Carl was looking for. I'll bet there were at least two flotation devices for everybody on the boat. And the poor Coast Guard was just saying, oh, enough, 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 stop. Okay, okay. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful man. Very generous heart and a razor sharp mind and a relentless dog chewing your ankles per persistence when oh, he God. knew he was right. Yep. Well, Jake, thank you for spending so much time with me. I think all skiers should be grateful for the work that you put in over the years. It's a remarkable endurance on your own part, and you're still doing it. Yep. I challenge you to find anybody with a PhD who is still pursuing his or her original research thesis way back in graduate school. Here we are, 50, 50 plus years. Hard to believe. Yeah. Quite an achievement. But, You're to be commended. No, I'm just a lucky guy, and I really enjoy what I've been doing, and I feel blessed to have had that opportunity. Well, thanks very much, Jake. Thank you on the part of all skiers for, for what you've done. You bet. This has been Jackson Hogan for Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Thanks for listening.